HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Last month, Hurricane Florence walloped parts of North Carolina. According to the Weather Channel, it was the wettest tropical storm to ever hit the Tar Heel State. So how did the restaurant industry respond? Some helped FEMA weather the storm, while others got to work feeding people on the ground. We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins, and we were just like, uh, okay. (laughs) Now the attention needs to be on Florence's long-term effect on North Carolina's farming community. The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, encouraging you to eat healthfully and nutritionally. Visit bobsredmill.com to learn more about their products and use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And if I ask you to think about Sicily, what comes to mind? Do you think about the beautiful beaches, the architecture, some of the Roman ruins, the bustling cities and markets? Right. But Sicily is about so much more than that. So tied to the land, so tied to the food, And my guest today knows a lot about it firsthand. Fabrizia Tascalanza was born and raised in Palermo. She went north to study and live for several years. Her mother, meanwhile, was a well-known cooking school teacher and cook on their family vineyard, vineyard that's been in in the family for ages. We'll find out all about that. Family vineyard and the farm, She ran a very successful cooking school, and finally, in 2010, Fabrizia decided perhaps it was time for her to come home. And the rest is history, if you will. So I'm very pleased to welcome today my guest, Fabrizia Lanza. Welcome, Fabrizia. Hello, thank you. Now tell me, you came back, you had 
you had a, a career as an art historian and children and living in the North. What made you come back? Well, first of all, I, I went away when I was 18 thinking I would never come back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, while in my 40s, uh, I'm also an only child, and I, there were very deep reasons why I came back. First of all, a sense of responsibility, because uh, I felt I had to choose very carefully if I wanted to interrupt the chain that my grandfather, my grand, my mother—I mean, most a lot of members of my family had had created this kind of soul, this kind of love, this kind of passion for the land and for the property. I'm an only child, so if I left forever, this would have been, who knows? I mean, interrupted, and uh, so this was very deep in me. Uh, without really not understanding properly what I was, what it was about, because I think that when you're very young, you don't know that uh, there are things that you can't build in one generation. You don't have this sense when you're very young. Aging, you understand that love, soul, uh, pile up. And uh, so this was the reason, first of all. And then a more subtle, maybe, reason. I wanted to eat a tomato that tasted of tomato. I was fed up. (laughs) Back to the farm, as I say, right? Right. Um, So this, how long had your mother been running the cooking school when you came back? Uh, My mother started in 1987, and uh, and uh, and she so she was running at this was in 2010 so she was running since 25 23 years mm. more or less and then sadly she passed away and then sadly she passed away and uh, and I took over and uh, now it's me running the school and and moving on mm. well I was uh, fortunate to observe firsthand last uh, evening that. You were giving a, you were, had written the menu for a dinner that was actually cooked by my son, which mm. I'm very proud of, and um, or his chefs in, and uh, and a book. You had done a book signing, and you were um, walking around the tables. And the majority of the people there, I was very impressed because the majority of the people there were all people who had attended the cooking school, and felt so strongly about the influence that you had that they traveled, some people, as you said, traveled quite a distance to come back for this dinner and see you and visit with you. That That's quite that's quite something. I yeah, think. that's quite something. It's true. We have um, between three and 400 people coming every year at the school, and I would say a good 60% uh, are Americans. The rest is Northern Europe or UK. And uh, the loyalty of uh, American people and um, the interest Americans have for what I can share with them is uh, uh, uncomparable. Uncomparable. And uh, I don't know if this has to do with the loss that Americans always complain about cooking, about eating habits, about good ingredients and all this stuff, or it's uh, nostalgia for a ideal country where 
the food system are still somehow in place. But you go out back and you pick that fresh tomato. Exactly, you said, exactly. Right? I don't know. I mean, this is an interesting topic. We could talk about this for hours. It's a complex topic because it borders mythology, romanticism, needs, deep needs, deep... Heavy on the romanticism, definitely. Right? Yeah, but also <laughs> deep... Ro- I mean, romanticism starts because you have a need, an urge, mm-hmm. somehow. You no, know, and it's nostalgia, as you said. It's, it, it is a nostalgia. It thing. is a nostalgia, and, uh, and so, uh, in some ways... And also, I mean, at the school... Uh, what we do is not, it's, it's not a common cooking school. What we do is people are, it's a participatory experience. So people are not just, you know, tourists, tourists uh, drinking or receiving from somebody else the information. They are part of it. It's, it's a true hands-on cooking experience. Yeah, they're also, they're also part of, um, of habits, of ways of being that are endangered and uh, so they also feel somehow that they're giving a contribution to to the maintenance to, to, to saving all of this mm-hmm. which is important mm-hmm. well obviously it you had so many of the same feelings and it affected you now what I didn't say in the introduction because I knew we would talk about it is that you I mean it was probably a little bit of a difficult shift writing and, and, and teaching about art and art history to suddenly being thrown into the food world, which you grew up large part with. But you, have, you went on to write three different books and uh, coming home to Sicily is, is the one in particular that I think um, elucidates the flavors of and, and, and the yeah, feeling. Yeah, Coming Home is a cookbook, so mm-hmm. it talks about the flavors, it talks about this uh, um, this uh, sense, this feeling of over, being overwhelmed, because I came back and I, uh, I hadn't kind of technically spoke my language, eaten my food for 20 years, although I always had Sicilian at home. I mean, it's not that I was, and I, I wasn't in Australia, I was in Verona, so. Yeah, it was still, yeah, <laughs> Italian, even though it wasn't Sicilian. Yeah, it was Italian. I, know, I know, we have this thing, but you know, it is another world, it is another Italy. It really is another Italy. They eat polenta, we eat pasta, they eat rice, and we have uh, cucci and some of this. There's really different different things. They don't have fresh vegetables except for capuccio, kale, and this kind of winter things. Anyway, um, so yes, I was I was uh, coming home was really about this incredible uh, re-encounter with my world. Was there anything in particular that you really and before you? before we get into into your filmmaking and and what you're trying to do, but anything in particular you really missed um, when before you came home and when you decided to come home, uh, food-wise? Well, I didn't miss it because uh, my my idea, you know, uh, uh, when you're very young, I wanted to be independent, and Sicily was out. So I didn't miss it. I didn't allow myself to miss nothing because I was happy with my life. I was married and I had two kids. I had a job. I was I wasn't to my new life. So why should I miss Sicily? <laughs> 
But it's true that the first question my grandmother would ask me when I landed in Palermo was, what do you want to eat? <laughs> <laughs> that, and, that's, that's Italian. Yeah, that's very Italian. <laughs> it's Italian that's and Sicilian, Italian. that's Absolutely, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, so, so you were in touch with all those, those flavors and those feelings, yes, even though I you was, were away. I mean, I went every holiday. Right. I would go for Christmas. I would go for summer. And my mother used to come and visit, and she couldn't come in the house unless she had a bread from Palermo <laughs> and this kind of stuff. All right. Well, you you also wrote well. You wrote a book for the global series the, on the olive. Yeah. The series of of single topic food um, histories, and what better place to write it from than Sicily, of course. Um, but now you ventured into filmmaking. Mm. Was this something new for you? Totally. No, mm. I'm not a filmmaker. I, I need to precise this because... Uh, no, uh, when I arrived to Sicily, part of this overwhelming was also that I was seeing for the first time uh, a lot of things that I had never really took care of or noticed, like hands moving in a certain way, doughs needed in a certain way, a uh, woman waiting in a certain way for the bread to rise. or and, uh, and so I grabbed a camera, a little camera my cousin had in his, in his cabinet, and, uh, and I started filming like crazy, not knowing how to film, having never taken a camera in my hand. And I did a first short documentary, which was very naive about the altars of St. Joseph that are made during St. Joseph's Feast on the 19th of March. And, um, and, and yeah, I started filming because I thought that this was the only way to really uh, kind of capture all these things together. I mean, if, I, if you write, I really think you can't talk or think or, or write about food just sitting at a desk. Mm -hmm. It's such an incredible three-dimensional, four-dimensional, 20-dimensional topic. That So I thought that filming was the best way. So I started filming, yeah. But obviously, the second, the second documentary, Amuri, that I made with the Kickstarter campaign, I called a, a, a director. I mean, I couldn't... Well, this, the film that you're talking about, um, Amuri, the sacred... Sacred flavors of Sicily. Sacred flavors of Sicily, and it is available. You can see it on YouTube. Yes, and it is a beautiful film. I I will compliment you Thank on that. You. It really is a, and it captures. It does capture the. I think the the fervent feelings the Sicilians have for their traditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their the holidays. The holidays. The food. All the, with food. The food all is with incredible. Food yeah. Yeah, incredible. And I, I, thinking about it, I thought, well, right. And then in, obviously, the the church is involved in these these saint holidays, but they're in, in through the church, by the church, in Catholicism, they're called feast days, when actually it's foods that you can't eat often during these holidays, but it surrounds the foods that they're celebrating mm -hmm. or the importance of the foods they're celebrating. Uh, for instance, you um, interviewed uh, the anthropologist. Um, uh, Antonino Butti. Antonino, right. Mm -hmm. And he gave a wonderful description yes. of the Day of the Dead. 
And can you go through that and tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a very, for us, the Day of the Dead is um, probably more important than Christmas uh, in the sense that it celebrates um, uh, the dead that come back, they wake up, and they come back and visit the kids of the family. So your grandmother who's, die, who's dead comes back, gets out of the tomb, and comes back to the house uh, and leaves some presents for the kids, her grandchildren or whoever uh, in the family who wake up in the morning and, uh, and find these presents. Now, this is a plot that we see in many, many feasts, right? Right. And um, in, uh, uh, what Butita is saying, and I totally agree, is that in, uh, in cultures that have, are really, really strongly tied to uh, agriculture, uh, this idea of having a time that is round somehow, where uh, birth and death are together, are tied together. Think of the act of putting the seed, of sowing a seed. A seed is dead, but has in itself life. You're putting it inside the ground, you're covering it, you don't know what's going to happen under the ground, and all of a sudden the miracle of life comes back. But in this space, when you don't know what you do, you pray the gods, or you pray the dead, or you pray whoever you want mm. in order to have that seed germinate. Right. And this is exactly what happens in uh, agrarian cultures. But since Neolithic time, it's not Catholicism at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, we... No, it's pagan. I mean, it's, it's, it's pagan rites. Yeah, right. it's, much, it's much earlier. Obviously, Catholicism has embraced this because they had to do with a, an agrarian culture. So, so for us... There are moments of the year, and one of them is the dead, which falls on the 1st of November, when Sicilians used to sow the wheat. So it's a very important date. Another big date is the 13th of December for St. Lucy, which is the so shortest day of the year. So it's also the beginning of winter. So it's also, I mean, the moment where everything goes to sleep according to mythology. Right. It's, it's everything is, you close, it's Halloween in it's some the solstice, ways. the winter solstice. Exactly. And then you have the, the starting again, which is St. Joseph, the 19th of March, where you can go into spring, and you, again, new prayers and a new ritual in order to propitiate the gods to have a nice harvest, to have a lot of, a bountiful uh, harvest. And then you have summer, well, so it's all the calendar. What I tried to explain with Amuri is that there is a, a calendar that follows very precisely these desires and fear of the agrarian society. And I think that, that it comes out very, very clearly. It, it comes across um, the uh, Santa Lucia, the, the St. Yes. Lucy feast. What I think is that so many cultures have these holidays, these same holidays, but the Sicilians seem to have something personal tied to them. For instance, the, the Feast of St. Lucy, very much a Syracusan yeah. feast, right? She was a young 
a young, uh, yeah, in Roman times, Roman, a beautiful right. girl, young girl who didn't get married, want to get married, would not marry the Roman god, yeah. right? And um, and she was persecuted and tortured, yeah. and so she became this, you know, this famous martyr for yeah. them. But then there was on her feast day, or was it a ship named after her that? Came into the harbor in Syracuse. Yeah, that's the legend. This is yeah, again okay. something very, very that goes up. So we're going. We're jumping up to the 17th century. Exactly. Then. She was from the 13th century. Yes. Right? No, she was even yeah. earlier yeah. with Romans time. But um, yeah, this is the thing. The reason why all these feasts were and saints were established in the 1600s, more or less, and so much later than the, what they and they had to build up a legend. And so the legend tells that the, the, the pest or famine was in the city and all of a sudden a big ship full of wheat would come in the, in the harbor and so it's the day of the saints so all of a sudden it's Saint Lucy who is sending the <laughs> ship and all that stuff. But they were, I mean, and this ship or she saved them in, you know, in the 17th century, saved them from famine. They this saved them exactly from all the this terrible yeah. hunger. Yeah. I mean, so much so that it spawned a new a new dish that to this day persists, right? Cuchilla. So the people jumped on the ship, gathered all the grain that was being shipped in and cooked it without even grinding it or, or separating exactly. the wheat from the shaft. So tell us about cuchilla. What is cuchilla? Cuchilla is a super old dish that Aputo Merisimeti recalls that probably it had to do with, uh, uh, I don't remember the Greek word, but anyway, of a feast celebrated in Greece. I mean, it's the idea of eating non-grinded grains is really old. And it's obviously old, because to grind the grain, it takes time, it takes tools, and probably at the beginning, it, it, they didn't do that. Hand grinding, you can only make so much at a time. Exactly. <laughs> so, cuchilla is basically a whole, whole grain, meaning not uh, as you intend when you have a whole, whole grain flour. It's, it's the grain, the seed of grain, cooked for hours, and um, and then uh, in old times we used to eat it savory. You would just do a soup. Where I live in Valedolmo, they do a soup with this grain, and they put a lemon, orange zest, and a few chickpeas and a bay leaf. Hmm. And my grandfather used to eat it this way. Nowadays they put cream on it, so they do it sweet. There's also a lot of tradition on, around that. So they do a ricotta cream, and they add the grains to ricotta cream. In Palermo, they do it this way, and, and it can be delicious if they don't oversweet it. It's mm -hmm. delicious. Mm -hmm. And it's what you should eat for St. Lucy. You should not eat pasta, which is made with grind wheat with flour. Hmm. Interesting. But it's, I love how there is all this background and stories attached to it, and that they... And they carry it on, and they carry on the tradition. It's, yeah. it's quite lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, people eat arancine because it's made with rice, Yes, yeah. which is not exactly fasting or being religious. <laughs> and filled with maybe a little meat, too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but delicious anyway. Yes. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> to eat as long as they're not starving. That's the good thing. Um, so all these holidays, I, I urge you to, to go look at the film. As I say, it's on YouTube. It's called Amuri, A-M-U-R-I. And it describes all these different holidays and the food and the stories behind them and attached to them and, and absolutely beautiful. 
So you are now embarking on a new film. Tell yes. us about that. So this is a new crazy project because I can't. I'm projectaholic, as people <laughs> say. It's called Amaro. And um, it's about uh, the bitter flavors of Sicily. So uh, this is a there's a funny story behind this new documentary, which is on Kickstarter, and we are done in I think eight days. So we need a last push. Anyway, Amaro, uh, we are very very familiar with bitter flavors in Sicily, in Italy in general, mm-hmm. and in Sicily even more. Coffee, chicory, bitter almonds, lots of wild greens, artichokes, cardoons. There's a lot of stuff that are bitter in our culture. But what struck me with this documentary, with this idea, I mean, I hope to make it, but uh, what struck me is that uh, Amaro is... um, is a flavor which we acquire with age, with with uh, with time. Because if you give something bitter to a kid, it's uh, he refuses very very likely. So amaro for me is a cultural flavor, and somehow is a very good way to depict what I think about food, which is that food is much more than a recipe. Food is much more than a history. Food is a layered topic that encompasses a lot, a lot of different aspects. And Amaro is a bit like that, because Amaro is foraging wild greens, so it belongs to the poor people who used to go and forage to eat their pasta with something. It belongs to wealthy people that find into these uh, very particular greens uh, that are foraged uh, only in certain time of the year. They, they find them a delicacy nowadays. It belongs to our culture because, for example, in Caltanissetta, which is a small town not far from where I live, there is a beautiful old market. And at this market, there is a kind of team of people called the Fogliamari, which are bitter leaves, the bitter leaves guy, who have been making their living in a hundred years harvesting bitter greens so it's kind of an official job Mm. but the interesting thing obviously these are poor people is that these this group of people in Caltaniceta are the first one in the procession carrying the Christ in uh, in uh, the Friday before Easter so and while they carry the Christ, this corporation, this group of people, they sing very ancient th- songs that come from the Greek uh, litanie. I don't know how you say that. Litany. Litany. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this. when I saw this, I said, my God, this is incredible. I mean, there is a, such a depth of significance in all of this. And the foragers always have this job. Exactly. Interesting. Interesting. So this is what I want to document with my new project, Amaro. And uh, and yeah, I want to I want to show this stuff because I know that now amaro is very fashionable in certain niche and people drink these amaros and all this stuff. But that's going to capture that'll capture an audience right there. (laughs) (laughs) The story behind bitter and bitter greens, and even bitterness, because life can be very bitter. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. How much, I mean, in watching the film about the the sacred holidays and the tastes of the sacred holidays in Amuri, there 
they're celebrating, but they're also remembering the times that were so difficult when mm. when people had nothing and they and they were starving yeah. and you know and, and of course Saint Joseph the the saint of the workers you know needing jobs and yeah so there is there is a sense of bitterness also tied to a lot of that no doubt there is a sense of bitterness there is a sense I mean how can you deny that there is a huge patrimony that is fading away yeah. so oh, I think it's a beautiful thing that they that they carry this on the bitterness don't it's get me beautiful wrong. Yeah. that they carry this on but of course they are they have a different idea of what how to carry it on uh, so we have a flourishing world of sagre I don't know how to translate holiday uh, feasts days, yeah, these festivals, festivals, festivals exactly right. that are uh, I mean half of the things are Chinese what a lot of respect for China, but it has nothing to do with um, with what we used to do. I mean, the world is moving ahead, not always in the best way. So um, this nostalgia is nice, is bitter, but it's also sometimes pointless. So I rather, but I mean, yes, if it goes towards a Chinese uh, little banquet or stuff, right, well, yeah. uh, yes, I would say. Toys and trinkets. So I would rather, try, this way of documenting for me is very important because not only I have people like you asking me about this and appreciating my efforts, but it's a very, it's the only way I have to show to my people what they're losing and what they're doing. That's an interesting point to think about and to stop on for a moment while we take a short break. And we'll be back with more discussion from Fabrizia Lanza. Stay tuned. As I've been getting to know Bob's Red Mill, I've been getting to learn a lot about the products they carry and actually a little bit surprised. They're not just grains and and flowers, but good snack foods too. In fact, popcorn, which is one of my favorite snacks, is a product that they carry. And, you know, it was probably back in, you know, the 70s, late 60s, when all of a sudden nutritional yeast became the thing to use in your foods. Bob's Red Mill also supplies nutritional yeast. So there I have my snack ready-made. Pop up some popcorn, and while it's still warm, sprinkle on a couple tablespoons of nutritional yeast. You're going to be surprised. You're going to think your popcorn tastes like it has cheese on it. Salty cheese. What could be better? Popcorn with nutritional yeast. And you can find these products and so many more at bobsredmill.com. And use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Fabrizia Lanza. Fabrizia is an author, an art historian, a filmmaker, a cooking school director and instructor, a woman of many talents, and a lot of history and knowledge about Sicilian culture and foodways. And Fabrizia, we were talking about the um, the new movie that you are just finishing up, and I want to mention to listeners the Kickstarter for that. It is a project that, yes, needs an extra push and a little funding at the end, and it is on Kickstarter. If you go to Kickstarter and search Amaro, A-M-A-R-O, you will come to the Kickstarter page for that. Thank you. Um, 
you you say that you're very um, interested in wanting to preserve um, the some of the culture and and food tra- foods food traditions yeah. of Sicily. I'm, look, Sicily is very hot right now, by the way, with yeah, tourists. Know. You know. Um, and do you see a lot of the traditional foods or foodways sort of getting lost or going by the wayside? What What is it in particular, aside from these um, some of these customs of holidays we spoke about, but the bitter flavors, what is it you really want to preserve? What are you looking to do? Um... It's it's very it's a it's a complex question. On one side, I think food food traditions are fading away, like anywhere else. I mean, I don't think that Sicily is more endangered than the UK or America or any other place. I mean, food systems are pretty much at risk um, because the world has changed so much, and because there's no reason why you should spend. You should break your back grinding uh, hundreds and hundreds of kilos of wheat while you have a machine that does it for you. So this is normal, I think, and this we have to take it into consideration. Uh, what I um, what I try so I look into this, and of course, if I find somebody uh, doing things by hand or doing it the old ways, I document it, I film it, I'm, I'm very intrigued, I like to know how it worked in the past in order to understand better the present, this is for sure. And there's a great charm in these things, for sure. But another big thing that concerns me a lot is the fact that, I mean, here in America or in the UK, people are uh, becoming in small pockets maybe, but they are becoming very aware of where they need to go, of how they need to eat, how they need to treat the soil, how they need to be to be sustainable. I mean, all these questions are now on uh, the minds and the brains of much more people than it was 20 years ago. So right. it's, it's, it's clear that we have to think and be aware of this stuff in a different way from 20 years ago. Now, in Sicily, uh, we are pretty much backwards on this thing. Uh, there are, of course, people that are aware. There's, a, there's a, an elite that knows and thinks and, and, and thinks properly. But there's a lot of uh, people that live in lost villages, like where I am, that uh, think that the shortcut of, uh, I don't know, destroying the old house and building a beautiful aluminium hut with uh, dreadful trees that have nothing to do with the nature surrounding and uh, stuffing their kids with Nutella and uh, hamburger is very cool. <laughs> and um, and this is, this is a fact. This is a fact. So while the new world, the so-called new world, is looking at us uh, as a possible model, because we are the old world, the old world is losing its own model. Mm. And this is something nobody talks about. Because I have all of you coming over there, you're enchanted by the shepherd who's milking the sheep by hand, who's making his ricotta, the best ricotta on earth, everything you want. 
But then the shepherd is there alone. He dreams about his aluminum window. He feeds his son on hot dogs and Nutella. So And he can't wait to escape someplace else. And he doesn't even think of escaping. He doesn't even think or knows that he needs his son to learn English and to move forward and to go and see, I don't know, uh, the cheddar, how it's made in the mm. UK or, or anything else. Yeah. And this is what I want to do. I want to give back to my country at least an opportunity to open up and to see and to compare because this is what you need to do to move ahead. That's right. That's right. And it's, well, you had the opportunity to go and study abroad yeah. and learn other things. So I think the, the notion of wanting to give back something that suddenly you know, you realize, you deal with all these other people in the food world across the countries and and know firsthand. If you can if you can make a little dent somewhere in, yeah, in your country, that would be this incredible. This is what I would like to do. Yeah, this is finally. So going back to Amaro and Amuri... Uh, filmmaking and, and responding to your first question when I, if I'm a filmmaker I'm not a filmmaker but for sure when my people see the documentary they see something and they recognize all of a sudden something that is proposed to them in a different language but they never would have thought that that was something valuable and worth filming Hmm. You see what I mean? It's just our holiday. It's just our celebration. Exactly. These are the breads we always make. Yes. These are the pastries yeah. we always eat. <laughs> yes. Uh, just, you know, speaking of pastries we always eat, I don't think people can really appreciate, although I think I did a show on... I did. If you look, I did a show on the pastries of St. Joseph's mm. holiday with... Um, I know very well that her name is you know, just leaving Vanished. my brain. I'll, I'll let you know. Um I don't think people really understand how elaborate this is. Can you describe a traditional home that does this large celebration Saint, Saint for St. Joseph's? Oh. Yeah. No, that's incredible. That's incredible. And it is, I mean, it has, I mean, it's, it's a huge social uh, topic because, um, first of all, the plot is that the people, uh, a family makes a vow because they had, uh, I don't know, somebody in the family was very sick and he got rid of his disease and, and, and is good. And so they make a vow to St. Joseph who helped that guy get out of his disease. So the vow consists in uh, taking the largest room of your house, uh, emptying it and building an altar, which is huge, a big table. As big as your room can hold, right? Yes. <laughs> And covering this altar with foods that have been prepared by the woman of the house in the in the ten days before the the nineteenth of uh, of March, and then this food is prepared to be offered to the three poorest kid of the village who represent the Holy Family. So there is the preparation of food ten days ahead or a week ahead. And the consumption of the food, the 19th of, of, uh, of March. March. So the preparation of the food is very well codified. It's all the women of the family who gather. So you can imagine 
in those small villages where the mother-in-law would fight all day with the, with the sister-in-law or such and such, all those things, the dynamics that are among women in a, in a very close family. And then, so you had to gather together and you had to work together for 10 days or a week. Men were chased off. They had to take care of kids or go and forage because a lot of greens are required for the, for the meal. Then there was the moment of eating and sharing the food. So I, when I filmed this thing, uh, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. The three kids who were eating and tasting all the food and also the, I mean, you should see the documentary, but uh, the owner of the house literally serves these three kids and serves them food and they have to taste everything and whatever is left over is given to the three families of the th poor kids and then there is the whole bread thing which is huge uh, bread is a big thing in Sicily since we are a wheat country and uh, and the breads are then given uh, to to the kids and to the family of the kids one was given to me and it was very moving uh, again, I think because um, I never said this, but I think that um, in some ways um, these people that were filmed by me, I was alone at the time. It was when I attempted with my little telecamera. Um, they, they had never had somebody taking pictures or filming. So I wonder what they thought. They, they didn't know where to put me in their imagination if I was uh, an uh, somebody putting my, sticking my nose in there or if I was somebody good, if I was part of it. Yeah. Or are you making that. fun of our yeah, traditions exactly. or are you no, I don't think appreciating they, them? They thought I made fun, but I was on which side was I? It was very difficult for them to... And finally... Uh, one of the three kids uh, gave me a piece of food, so I was kind of accepted by the whole thing, and uh, and so they ended up by giving me a bread because hospitality is a great thing in mm. Sicily. It was very moving. That's interesting. See? I think it must be something southern, southern, southern across the world. Yeah. Yeah. Sun <laughs> helps. The sun helps. The sun does help, right? Absolutely, and we could use a little of that. Well, it's it's I I have never seen um, such elaborate pastry work yeah. as I see in some of those pastries and and cookies that aren't too sweet, kind of almost a little savory. But, no, um, the tree of life and the and yes. and on top of a, like a fig paste or yes. something, just amazing work yeah. and the the time and the and the love that goes into it or. Hopefully it's still love, but and less people think that you know this is all just you know a, a film about you know religious holidays. Certainly not. This is a this is a culture. This is a a whole food culture, and these people had a structure. What was what gave them structure from the beginning of time? Religion or some type of belief gave them structure. Yeah, and then built into the structure were these holidays, which then they filtered with their food habits and their food culture. And it really is quite amazing to see, I think, for me, to see the um, Sicilian practices of some of these very old holidays, you know, being celebrated today in, in many of the same ways. Yeah, unfortunately, less and less, because... Uh, because I, 
not enough time. No We're in modern culture. Exactly. Got to move on. And also, know. I think part of is also refute. There is a refusal. They refuse because it's tied people. to religion. You think? Or? No, no, because it's it's. I mean, I, I forgot to say, but the Saint Joseph was also a great way for social control. I mean, you mm. can check on the poorest of your village and support them. It was that now. There's no poor people anymore. I mean, everybody has food. There's another misery that I would call misery more than poverty. People are miserable because they don't have a job, they're pointless, they spend all their days in front of TV. But everybody has a TV and a cell phone. Hmm. Hmm. So there's no more really... Uh, I mean, in Sicily, you can live with really very little. Or you said the sun, once again. You yeah, know, you can... Helps. I mean, there are economies that go on with 15 euros a day. Wow. It's nothing. 15, hmm. 20 euros a day. You can have three meals with 20 euros. Hmm. So that'll get you by. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And it's an old culture made up of so many other cultures all wrapped up into one. It's a very unique place. It is a unique place, yes. I would say so. It's a, I like to say it's the last of Eastern worlds, and try the last of Western worlds and the first of Eastern worlds. That's it's, right, yeah. it's right there. Sometimes you think you're in Africa or in Lebanon. Other times you think you are... Well, it's rare that you feel you are in Sweden, but... <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's it's a very different part of Italy. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Mm. And it's it's amazing that the religion even caught on. I mean, you know that it, that the well, it, pilgrims, it's a, you know, kind of stopped there and never didn't go on. Yeah. But, you know, it but it happened eventually. It happened. It's a very yeah. Catholic country. Yeah. Interesting. Would you and you would consider it still today a very Catholic country? Yeah. Or? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, mm. not not as much as uh, as it was when with my father, my parents, less and less, but still. Yeah, the south of Italy is definitely more Catholic than the north. Mm. I think each generation must see yes. that, you know, coming along. Yeah. So interesting. So many topics to talk about. So much so much history there. So much, you know, and of course the food is is is, you know, so intriguing too. It's too a good lent. Length. Yeah. Length. Length. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, so again, I, I urge you to go see the to go to YouTube if you can if you're interested to see Amuri, and um, and if you get a chance and you're living on more than 15 euros a day, <laughs> check out the Kickstarter program for Amaro. Yes, please. <laughs> and we may have a full feature length film. The, the Amuri film is only half an hour long or so. Right? Amuri is 40 minutes. 40 minutes. Okay. Yeah. And. Um, the Amaro, if I get the fundings, I, I will do another documentary. I don't quite know yet the length of it. Yeah. The Bitter Tastes of Sicily. What a wonderful chat, um, Fabrizia. I thank you so much for thank joining you. me on the show today. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Again, this has been another Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.